Thanks for listening to this message from The Block KC. The Block KC exists to help young adults build their lives on what counts. We believe that is Jesus and what God has revealed in His Word. We'd love to see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. at Lenexa Baptist Church. Now, let's listen to this week's message. The Block, Kansas City. How are we doing? Come on. I, one thing I love about Kansas City, I'm from Missouri, so is my wife, but I love how much um, excitement you have about your city. As great as Tampa is, it's as close to the promised land as you can get. Can't, it does not have like the excitement for its own city that you guys have, and I love it. All right. Hey, it's good to be with you. My name is Trent. Let me just say something because it's on my mind right now, and it's not in my notes, so who knows what's about to come out. I love the sound of you guys talking. Like I, I, I walked out there and if you saw a guy in a green shirt, that was me creepily taking a video just so I could get the audio to send to my wife of just the sound of a bunch of young adults talking about to enter into these doors and worship King Jesus. That's a beautiful sound. Genesis chapter 15, again, not in my notes. You're gonna go to Acts in a second. But Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abraham, a pagan, is taken outside. Now he had been promised that he would have a huge family, that they'd be a blessed family, that God would multiply their number and give them land. And Abraham has troubles kind of doubting that. And so God said, come outside, come on. I want you to look at the stars of the sky. And I, wanna, I want you to number them if you can. You can't do that but I want you to try. And God said, so shall your offspring be, Abraham. I bring you good news tonight because here's the deal. We can be very pessimistic sometimes with our faith. We look around and we see what's going on in the world. But you ought to think back to that promise in Genesis chapter 15 because the stars that Abraham looked up at that day, that's you on the other side of the world. And God knew it. Abraham did it. You are the fulfillment of that promise. According to Galatians 3, you are Abraham's descendants in Christ. And so you no longer have to look up at the stars in the sky, though you can. You can look to your right and your left and see God is a promise-keeping God. It is a good thing to hear you talk and to see your faces. I don't know you. Maybe a few of you. In fact, Caitlin Zerker crashed into my car in college, but I, I <laughs> sorry, Caitlin. But it's good to see you. Hey, if you would, open up your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. That's where we'll be, Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 was written by a guy named Luke. Luke had come to know Christ and had read and heard about the things of Jesus. He had read different books that had already been written in your Bible about Jesus. He came across a guy named Theophilus. I have the opinion that Theophilus was most likely a Roman official. Theophilus either was 
a believer kind of in a crisis of faith with the things that he had heard about Jesus, struggling in his faith. Is it true? Is it not true? Or Theophilus was not a believer, and Luke wanted to see him led to the Lord. And so Luke wrote an orderly account to Theophilus, according to Luke chapter 1, so that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things that he had heard about Jesus. Sometimes we think about how to disciple someone. Well, God's discipleship manual for Theophilus was Luke's work of tracking down the events and the people that had met Jesus and just providing them for Theophilus through Luke. So you think, okay, how do I, how do I walk through the Bible with someone? Just open the book of Luke. It's a good start. But Theophilus did not only receive one book, he received two from Luke, and the second was the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a historical account, not of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but rather the church that began after God's Spirit was sent. Because Jesus promised in his ministry that he would send the advocate, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead. And so the way Luke begins the book of Acts is he actually says, I recorded for you, O Theophilus, the things that Jesus began to do. Because Jesus is still working, is he not? By his spirit through his church across the world, you're the stars. So if you would, Acts chapter 2, and what we're going to do is we're actually going to begin in verse 12, if I'm not mistaken, if my notes are correct. Actually, <laughs> verse 14. Okay. So let me tell you a few other things that just take place before Acts 2, 14. Because Jesus, after he died and resurrected on the third day, he then showed himself or revealed himself to have resurrected to over 500 people, including his apostles. Now, they had the good news of the gospel to take to every city they could, but Jesus said, wait, do not go anywhere. In fact, what I want you to do is I want you to pray because I am going to send the Holy Spirit to you. You need to wait. You need help. And so they waited. And then the time of Pentecost came around where all of these different nations were gathered in Jerusalem where the apostles were. They had come from all these different places. I think 16, 15 different places you can read about them in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. They had all come and gathered either as God followers or God fears. Many of them Jews. And what took place? Verse 3, divided tongues of fire as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. That's the apostles. Verse 4 in chapter 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. For the record, that's other languages. You'll see that in a second. Verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, there was this sound, like rushing, like, like wind. It was loud. A ton of people gathered to hear what was going on. They were bewildered because each one of these different individuals from all these nations was hearing those guys who only spoke one language speak in their own language. In verse 11, 
They said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They heard the gospel in their own language. Verse 12, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? In verse 13, but others mocking said they're filled with wine, a.k.a. they're drunk. They're drunk, right? In other words, um, let me say it this way. Some who refused to listen to the gospel in their own language, though they heard it, paid more attention to the languages they did not understand. And instead of listening to the good news of what Jesus had accomplished, probably because they were convicted of the sin of killing Jesus, they said, they're drunk. They're drunk. Now, okay, I don't know about you, but I have been around my fair share of drunk people. Just take that as you will, okay? And here's the deal. They, they do not tend to speak very well in their own language, much less articulately. That's a word that you want to say, artic, articulately. Is that even a word? Yeah, articulately. Articulately in a language they don't speak. They, they slur their own language. They don't speak a new one, right? <laughs> Drunk people don't become smarter. I didn't need to look down to read that. <laughs> if that were the case, then when we send out new IMB missionaries, we're SBC Church too, right? When we send out new IMB missionaries, we would not require them to go through uh, years and years of classes to learn the language they go to. We would just send them boxed wine, right? If that was the case, um, that wine made you smarter and more articulate speaking a different language, like where's Rosetta Stone? It's not a business. Duolingo, also not a business or a fun app with a birdie, right? They don't get smarter. So what does Peter do? Well, Peter addresses the bogus accusation by saying to people very familiar with the scriptures, have you not read the text? He answers the question of those in verse 12 who ask, what does this mean? And he provides an explanation of events. Before he preaches, he provides an explanation. You see it in verse 14, so follow it with me. Peter, standing with the 11, he's kind of the spokesperson for the apostles. He's often speaking. He lifted up his voice and he addressed those gathered, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, breakfast isn't being served anywhere yet, much less mimosas. But this, what is happening right now, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel. And in the last days it shall be, Peter says, this is a new day, a new age, the last days, which the rest of the apostles affirm in the New Testament, where God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh. There's the promise. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. I would say this is a sharing of the gospel. 
Your young men shall see visions. You see that throughout the book of Acts. And your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants, those are believers, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Again, there's the promise. And they shall prophesy. That is, they shall tell others about Jesus. In the Old Testament, like we knew a Messiah was coming, but the Christ, the son of the living God, he's going to die on a, a Roman cross. Like they didn't expect that. And I will, verse 19, show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. I think that's coming still in the future. Before the day of the Lord comes. Of course, that's when Christ returns. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass. Here you go. It shall come to pass in this new day where God pours out his spirit. Here's the unique thing about that day. That everyone who trusts or who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That what, that, that's what marks the day. So what was the promise that God made to Joel or through Joel? Here it is. It's on the screen. That God would pour out his own spirit on his servants. That they might declare the work of God in a way that had never been before. He would dwell in them, you see it on the screen. He would direct them to truth and he would declare his work amongst all people through them so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Is that not what the text is teaching? And Peter's saying, it's today. It begins today. Now, here's a little of my fear of our generation. I think sometimes, and hear me, I am the biggest proponent of expositional preaching that like you will probably find. Maybe not, there's probably some others, but I'm a big proponent of it. But every once in a while, it's very healthy for us to step back and see what God has done, is doing, and plans to do. Big picture of the scriptures. We call this redemptive historical context. Theological word that just means step back from it. Sometimes we can miss the forest of God's plan by examining the color of sap on a given tree or the pattern of bark. And so I want to appeal to you tonight to get a really big picture of what Jesus is accomplishing here. That you might see from the very beginning what his plan is. Before I, in fact, ask you to take some action steps from the message, I want you tonight to simply sit in awe. I think, and I may be reading our generation wrong, but I think some of the problem of our apathy is less related to work as it is to wonder. We play with trinkets and miss the treasure of what's going on. C.S. Lewis said it when he said we play with mud pies and don't even know before us is the treasure of the sea. So I want you tonight to get, at least from the beginning, a big view of God and his plan. And here's what I'm gonna tell you that might sound a little interesting at first. What Peter is saying here, in a sense, is God is building his temple. God is building his temple. There's a little bit of theology here and you got to follow me because what is happening is an incredible and incredibly significant moment in redemption history. You're going to find on the screen 
thankful for the tech team, a few slides and you'll follow along with those pictures. Because I want you to get a biblical theology of the tabernacle and how it relates to this moment in salvation history. Because in the Old Covenant, which you know most often as the Old Testament, God's spirit dwelt amongst his people, but separate from them. In the tabernacle and of course later in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And with great fear, the great high priest would enter his presence once a year. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus enters and walks among us, in the arrival of the Messiah, God came to his people in Jesus, the God-man, the very image of God, where the fullness of God dwelt, the second picture. And you'll notice similar language here. And let them Make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Now there was a curtain. They could not enter, only the high priest one time a year. And then Jesus actually, John would tell us, tabernacled among us or templed among us. It's the same word. His very presence amongst his people. Once with, now amongst. But now in the new covenant, after the outpouring of God's spirit, God dwells not just with his people and not just amongst his people, but in his people. And his people, indwelt by his spirit, can daily approach him, not once a year, but every day with confidence because the curtain that separated our access to God was torn up on a bloody cross. We have access to God. In fact, his very presence dwells within us. Consider with me Ephesians chapter 2. He came, that is Jesus, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit, that is Jew and Gentile, one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer, here's the point, no longer strangers and aliens to God's promises and to salvation, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Follow me. In him, this is Ephesians chapter two, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. He does not dwell in a place he's made holy any longer. He dwells in a people he's made holy. And the good thing that I didn't put on this screen is that will be permanent one day. What I mean by that is you read Revelation chapter 21 and it teaches you and the dwelling place of God will be with man, same word. God is building his church, his temple for others to see and magnify his name. Again, I'll say it. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle built by the sweat of men was the holy place where God dwelt. In the new covenant, God no longer resides in a place he's made holy, but a people he's made holy. Not made by the sweat of men, but made by the very spirit of God. First Peter comments on this and he says, Peter does, as you come to Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. God dwells among you. 
to be a holy priesthood. There was only a few of those. Now you're priests. You have access to God. To offer spiritual sacrifices, no longer your animals, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on. You are a chosen race, church, a royal priesthood, church, a holy nation, church, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that mean? You're like theological language. Practical, please. Almost there. Means there are no more priests, for that's who you are. There are no more sacrifices, for that's what you do. Romans 12. There is no more, as a follower of God, going to a nation in one place, but a gospel going with a nation to every place. You follow? No more is the temple a place to come and see God's work, for it is now a people going to share God's work. Peter says it's happening. The Spirit of God I think this is a slide, indwells believers everywhere, empowering them so that God might be seen and known everywhere and not just in Jerusalem. This is why the Spirit of God came, for God's glory and for the gospel to be spread across the face of the earth. What did Acts 1-8 teach us? Why were they to wait? so that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem? No, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So back to our text. What is Peter saying? He's saying we're not drunk. God has kept his promise. The Spirit of God has fallen. This is a significant event in redemption history. God has sent his spirit and he is dwelling in us. He's building his temple where he'll dwell forevermore. You think of other texts where Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets or the teachings of the Old and New Testaments are the foundation and you are the living stones where God will dwell forever. Again, the promise of the Holy Spirit is God's, sorry, the promise of the Holy Spirit is the promise of God's presence in his people, not just among or around them, everywhere, not just in a place or a part of the world. Now, the question needs to be asked to follow along in our text, how does that happen? How does God's Spirit, how has he chosen to indwell individuals by his spirit. And what is the spirit's role in all of this? Individually. How does God begin this building? How does this take place in history and in our text? That's the question. And here's the main point of today's message. It's simple. It's the outline of Acts chapter two. A spirit-empowered sermon from Peter led to spirit-led conviction in those listening, which produced or created a spirit-filled church. 
Let's take that statement just one portion at a time. A spirit-empowered sermon led to spirit-led conviction. Now, first off, I just want to just point out something I think is really important because the person who's preaching in Acts chapter 2, his name is Peter. You may know a little bit about Peter, but maybe you haven't focused on the importance of him preaching this sermon. Now, he may have been the key spokesperson in Jesus' ministry. And he may have been one of the closest disciples to Jesus, but do you remember he tried to stop the crucifixion? The very reason Jesus came to earth to provide salvation for people, to die upon a sinner's cross, giving sinners life? He tried to stop it. And Jesus said to him, what? Get behind me. Yikes. Not good, <laughs> right? You d d don't want to hear that. Satan tries to stop salvation and uses one of Jesus' closest friends. And then when Jesus was crucified, though Peter said, I will stand by you until the end, Peter denies him, not once, not twice, but three different times. Three different times. He was guilty. He was arrogant. He was brash. He was often rude. He spoke before he thought. He tried to cut a guy's head, like, right down the middle, but kind of missed in his ear. He didn't understand the scriptures like Isaiah 53, which taught that the Messiah had to come and die. And when the Messiah did come and die, he hid. Fearing any association with Jesus, lest he have the same fate. And yet, Jesus forgave Peter. He preaches the first spirit-filled sermon like ever. He forgave him, which should just, just be a reminder. We're going to talk about this a lot, but be a reminder that, that Jesus' blood is thick enough to cover any sin, and his merciful arms stretch wide enough to embrace any sinner who comes guilty looking for forgiveness. Peter was guilty. And yet we learn that his past has not prohibited him from being used by God in a mighty way. I don't know who you are. I don't want to pretend to. I live pretty far. But it is a constant lie of Satan himself to say, not only are you not savable, but you are unusable. Why? Because Satan wants to stop salvation at any cost. Peter sought God's mercy, and God's mercy had transformed him not just by wiping away his guilt, but by emboldening him to herald the very news about the very person he had hid from. The Spirit had given him confidence. I would write that down. The Spirit had given him confidence, audacity even. Because who is he speaking to? The very people he said, I don't know. I don't know. He's speaking to the very people when they shouted, 
we want Barabbas, kill Jesus, that he kind of just faded back. Forgiveness of Jesus changed people, has, changes people and it changed Peter. But not only did the forgiveness of Jesus and the indwelling of God's spirit transform Peter into confidently preaching the good news of the gospel in front of those that he hid from and hid with. But it also helped him understand the scriptures. The Holy Spirit helped Peter to understand the scriptures. You see, Peter didn't fully understand Jesus' death before he died. But now that the Spirit of God had been poured out on him, the same Spirit that Jesus said would lead him and other believers to all truth, Peter preached an articulate message of truth that transformed a number of people. In fact, saved their soul. And what was the first Spirit-empowered sermon? What did it sound like? What did it include? Well, the first Spirit-empowered sermon was a gospel-centered sermon, actually from the Old Testament. A gospel-centered sermon, what, 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 do you, what do you mean by that? Well, for time's sake, instead of explaining every verse line by line, I want to highlight what Peter says. Look with me. Verse 22. This is where the sermon begins, and it actually begins and ends with an indictment and instruction. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Three different ways he says you know what he did. He's pointing at them. Remember, even the conspirators could not understand the miracles. Verse 23, this is biting. This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified, that is the Jews, by the hands of lawless men, that is the Romans. And Peter said, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In other words, he resurrected. Now, I think it's worth pointing out, especially in light of verse 23, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Now, listen to me for just a moment. Peter finds no tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility for the actions of sin they committed. He does not find tension there. Both his knowledge of the sin of man before man was created and his plan to send Jesus through the hands of sinful men to the cross, he does not find tension there. This is only tension for creatures who are not like our creator, who can't understand how God is both outside of time and has come into time. For our God sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. He does not find tension here. For our God knows the very end from the beginning. And here's the best thing. For our God can use what mankind intended for evil and intended for good. What does that mean? That what 
What mankind intends for evil, God intends for good. We get that phrase actually from Genesis 50, 20 in the story of Joseph. But, he, but, but, it's, a, but it's a picture of how God's wrath and justice and how his love and mercy meet in his sovereignty and how they're not opposed to one another. What mankind intends for evil, God intends for good means that even the worst of sinners committing the most heinous of crimes are carrying out God's decree. Consider with me a story, if you would, to explain my point. You remember Caiaphas, the high priest, during Jesus' life and ministry? Caiaphas was the key conspirator in Jesus' death. He was actually called by God to be, in some ways, the mouthpiece of the living God, helping people understand and know the God of the Bible. And yet when Caiaphas looked at Jesus in the face, he did not know him. He mistook him for a liar because he was run by his own sin and pride and greed. This is what is said by Caiaphas in John 11. Follow me here. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For Jesus performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We want our homes. But one of them, that is Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, listen to this. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Do you understand that? Here's what the Bible says about that. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Are, do you get that? If you don't get that, Caiaphas has said to save our own bottoms and to keep our people, let's kill Jesus. And what John says is actually he's prophesying there what's actually going to happen and it's actually going to save their bottoms, just not in the way he wants it to save their bottoms. You, you following me? Caiaphas thinks he's acting out of his own accord, but he's actually acting accord, according to God's plan. He is going to kill Jesus because that's God's plan. He wants to do it to save his people, and that's what God does to save his people. It's like God's sovereign. It's like God knows what he's doing. And it's like people don't understand, often try to work against him and never do it right. At least according to how they want to do it. Caiaphas, this is on the screen, Caiaphas setting in motion satanic schemes, can't even talk, schemes, was unknowingly paving the already planned road to Calvary. He was doing God's work, the very thing he had called to do. He just didn't do it wittingly. Do you get that? That's crazy. Literally, like I don't know how that works and that's okay because I'm not God. 
What man intends for evil, God intends for good means that even the worst of sinners committing the most heinous of crimes are carrying out God's decree. And the good that God intends is actually good for you even though you're not doing what's good. Follow me here. The good is gospel grace provided for those evil planners. For Caiaphas. Peter says to his listeners, you killed Jesus. You crucified him. Don't move too quickly past this. Because what's about to happen? They're about to be saved. The Holy Spirit cuts their heart for what they did. Jesus was omniscient. He knew who he was dying for. Who was Peter talking to when he said, you killed Jesus? Thousands who were there. Thousands who jeered and mocked Jesus each step he took to be slain for their salvation. Thousands for whom the death of Christ was for and thousands who would that day turn from their sin and trust Christ. The block, what does that mean? Jesus, beaten, bruised, scorned, and slandered, walked to Calvary where he would hang not for his sin, but for the very sin of his scoffers. And he knew it. And he kept walking. He stumbled toward death to save the very sinners who slandered him as he took each step. Those who one day shouted Hosanna and the next day shouted crucify him. Because each painful step he took would eventually provide salvation so he opened not his mouth and like a lamb was led to the slaughter oh what mercy you have received in Christ he knew you he knows you And he still died for you. Isn't it it a, a blessing to think through the fact that when you trusted Christ, God had paid for your sin past, present, and still yet future 2,000 years ago? He knew your sin and still stumbled to die as your Savior. We're not done yet. Verses 25 through 34, he appeals to the crowd because they loved David. He says, David might be your hero, and he was, but even David prophesied about this coming. Now David's body is in the ground, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But Jesus is alive. 
David is in his tomb. Jesus walked out of his, in other words. Verse 30, David being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The grave could not hold him past three days. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. In other words, Jesus is not only alive, he is seated on the throne, immovable with all authority in heaven and on earth. And as he sits, all enemies will be made his footstool. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Hear me because I think this needs to be said. All of God's enemies and all of his bride's enemies will meet the feet of Jesus, either humbly bowing before them or laying underneath them. All God's enemies will be made his footstool. If you are a believer then, what confidence do you lack if your Lord is on the throne? The block, I can tell you two things with full confidence from the scriptures. Here's the first. The first is that Christ's enemies will experience the entirety of his wrath, being justly tread under his foot like wine in a wine press. But I can tell you a second thing with full confidence from the scriptures. Christ died for his enemies. That if they repent and run to him for mercy, he will not keep any of them away. In fact, every enemy who believes upon Jesus becomes his friend and instead of rightly facing the foot of God will be embraced in the arms of God because Jesus already drank that cup they would drink otherwise of wrath. I pray that in some ways, if you are an unbeliever, this makes you uncomfortable uncomfortable enough that by God's grace, you might recognize your sin, turn from it to the merciful arms of Jesus. There will be many who drink the cup of God's wrath in the future, but in the past, one has already drank the cup of God's wrath on a bloody cross so that many might not have to. The good news of the gospel is not just a picture of love. It's a payment on a cross. Believer, by your faith alone, because of God's grace and his work through his son, you do not and will not ever face the punishment of your sin because someone already has in your place. His name is Jesus. Oh, what mercy we have in God. Like those listening to Peter's message, I pray some of you, if you do not know the Lord, are cut to the heart. I do not waver at telling you in this room, God loves you. I just say, look at Jesus. 
If you, like those in Peter's day, are cut to the heart, this is a work of God's Spirit. I am not that persuasive. If you are made aware of your sin against God, made aware that Jesus took upon himself God's wrath, made aware that he did so that anyone, even you, who believes upon him would be made, or, sorry, would be forgiven and full. And if you have been made aware that he sits upon his throne and will one day return to judge those who do not trust in him, that is the Spirit's doing. So what should you do? I only echo the words of the Apostle Peter you should turn from your sin and turn to the mercy of Christ. Throw yourself at his feet for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You do not call upon the name of the Lord to be saved if it's not the Spirit's working. And you gladly give yourself to Jesus as the Apostle Peter says, stand before your church and be baptized put on the team Jesus hat and give your allegiance to him and follow him all your days. I want to say one more thing before the band came up. I wrote this. I'll say stopped on the drive over here. I should probably stop most of the time. What father would turn away a desperate child? How much better a father is Christ the very author of love and savior of sinners. Will he turn you away? Did he not come? And for who? Sinners. So be of good cheer because he came for you. Wearied, wounded, wicked and all. So do not take Satan's counsel. Go to Christ. Take your fears and take your tears. Take your sin and go to him. Go to Christ. His arms are wide enough for you. What should you do? I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us in a time of worship. I'm going to come back up and explain one more small thing from the end of Acts chapter 2. But let me say this. As you're watching the band come in, let me say this. There should be two responses to hearing the gospel. Or at least I hope for two. The first, believer in this room, you say, I heard that. Would you just cherish it and sing joyfully for God has been merciful and for those of you who do not know Christ I pray the Spirit's working in your life to open your eyes to the goodness of God in Christ and you not just cherish the gospel but be changed by it so would you pray with me and I just ask however the Lord leads you to respond whether that's finding someone with a block shirt and just talking with them about what it means to follow Jesus. Or sitting down and praying before the Lord. Or standing up and just finding your joy in Christ. Would you do it? God, we thank you for our time together. I pray that as we worship, you would be honored and glorified. That you would smile from heaven.
that our praise would be pure and not a facade or a show. Lord, that we have been and would continually be reminded of your love for us. Lord, I thank you for this gathering. What a joy it is to see God's people, maybe not halfway around the world, but a good half of the United States away from me and to know I'm not alone. Our team back home is not alone. Lord, would you do what you said you would do by your spirit, through your word, convict, challenge, encourage, teach, make us more like you. In your name, amen.
so what did it create? You can be seated for just a second, just a second more. Acts 2, 42 through 47 simply says, after they were cut to the heart, they believed, they were baptized, they were counted, 3,000 of them, and they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the Bible, and to the fellowship of the believers to one another. They committed themselves to God's word, to gathering, to giving as any had need, and to going with the gospel, and the Lord kept adding to their number. Why do I say that? Because evidence that the Great Commission was effective was the beginning of a local church. The first Spirit-empowered sermon led to Spirit-led conviction, which produced the first Spirit-filled church. Now we might pray, God, we want to be a Spirit-filled church. And what we might think is what the 12 apostles experienced, kind of an ecstatic emotional moment. And for the most part, that was not the case. The work of God's Spirit did not just lead to emotions. It was revealed in rearranged priorities. It was revealed in how they cared for one another, how they committed themselves to one another. I love what Ray Ortland said, and I close with just a few more words. When the early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit him into the margins of their busy lives. They redefined themselves around a new, immovable center. He was not an optional weekend activity along with kids' soccer practices. They put him first and his first church first and his cause first in their hearts, first in their schedules, first in their budgets, first in their reputations, and first in their very lives. So maybe you say, I want a spirit-filled church. What does it look like? A group of people committed to the gospel, committed to gathering, committed to growing, committed to giving, and committed to going, and bearing fruits of the Spirit. Would you look like a different sort of people? God's temple in a world filled with idols, bearing witness to who sits on the throne of that very tem temple who will dwell with you forever. God's spirit has fallen. The promise has come. This is good news. God, we thank you for our time together. We want to make a impact in the world. And sometimes we think it looks ecstatic and emotional. And moments are great. Events are great. And emotions are great. 
but your spirit sustains us, would we bear its fruit? Would we be committed to your word and to caring for your people? Would we not just long for emotion, but rearrange our priorities? Your temple on your earth forever. In your name, amen.